anticipating the unintended. Number 153. India Policy Watch. Prediction Time. Insights on burning policy issues in India. Happy New Year. This is a time of hope, optimism and new beginnings. But 2022 has signaled it has no time for such niceties. It is already hitting high notes on all kinds of wrong metrics, peak COVID-19 positivity rates, deeper social polarization and dangerous levels of toxicity on social media. And it is only the first week. Maybe 2022 intends to get all the bad news out early and then coast on calm waters. That's the hope. Hope, like Andy Dufresne taught us, is a good thing, maybe the best of things. We write this newsletter because we are hopeful about the future. We believe we can make an impact, however small, on the demand side of the policy equation. That making people aware of policy choices and helping them anticipate the unintended will lead to a change in the supply side of politics. There are two preconditions for this to happen which we have assumed to hold true. 1. People have time and mental space available for discussions that matter to their lives. 2. A belief we can arrive at what's good for us through debates and discussions. But there are days when you wonder if these hold. The cacophonous noise on issues of identity, validity and nationalism drowns all other conversations. There's no conceding of ground regardless of what facts suggest. Any factoid that questions your existing hypothesis isn't seen as worthy of contemplation. The more perceptive might register a mild dissonance. Instead, you wait for your side to dig out a counter that reconfirms your bias and negates the dissonance. The possibility of consensus on what's good is increasingly remote. And once you are in this territory, the public part of public policy goes out of the window. Whatever remains then is no different from a fiat. But then hope is a good thing. And so we start the new year with hope. Like those last lines from The Great Gatsby. Tomorrow we will run faster, stretch out our arms farther, and one fine morning, so we beat on, boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. Like last year, we start with that timeless way to fill pages during this time of the year. Here is my random list of predictions for 2022. Part 1. Economy. Number 1. It will be more of the same for India on growth, inflation and fiscal deficit. Factoring in the Covid base effect, we will be in the 5 to 5.5% growth range. Inflation, CPI, will be around 5% with an occasional jump to 6% during the year despite threatening to go out of control. Maybe three interest rate hikes, a total of 75 BPS, during the year will keep a lid on it. Public markets will moderate a bit. Private market valuations will continue to be in bubble territory. There's a lot of liquidity that's already raised and ready to be deployed for startups. China won't attract it as it will continue to go down the path of self-reliance and its notion of an equal society. So, expect even more than the $36 billion that flowed into startups in 2021. And more commentary on the Indian entrepreneurial energy that will be appropriated to show how well the economy is doing. The money flowing for Indian startups is good news, of course. But it cannot be the only metric to determine the health of the economy. 
the divergence between the formal and informal economy and the K-shaped recovery that we have written about will continue. Number 2. There won't be much to write about reforms. Some attempts at piecemeal MSP reforms will be attempted to make up for the repealed farm laws. The national monetization pipeline will get going but the progress will be modest. A couple of more disinvestment proposals of PSUs, including banks, will be taken up. But this will be for raising revenues rather than a planned strategy to make PSU's market competitive. The LIC IPO will just go over the line and that will be the big event to showcase reforms. All of this doesn't mean we will be short of big announcements about reforms or intention to reform. Part 2. Politics. Number 1. BJP election machine will continue its winning run barring the odd defeats in Punjab and Goa. The big prize, UP, will be fought hard but BJP will win a safe majority. The Bahujan vote of the depleted BSP will shift to it more than to SP and that will make all the difference. By the end of the year, there will be a more formal coming together of regional parties as opposition. Number 2. There will be some kind of split in the Congress. The party in its current form is untenable and beyond a point, there will be nothing to lose for those who split it. The key question is who will lead it, those who have a political base and think Congress leadership is a liability that cannot be managed any further, or those without a political base but with strong ideological opposition to the BJP. My guess is it will be the latter. In any case, it won't make much of a difference. Global Policy Watch A Season of Industrial Policies Bringing an Indian Perspective to Burning Global Issues On December 29, the Union government issued guidelines for another production-linked incentive, PLI, scheme, this time for textiles. In all, there are 13 sectors, from electronics to steel, where PLI schemes are under various stages of execution. We had given such schemes the full anticipating the unintended treatment in edition number 86. In this edition, I want to step back and review the merits and demerits of industrial policies, of which PLI is a specific variant. Part 1. What's an industrial policy? Scott Lincecum of the Cato Institute has a neat definition. Link available on screen. Industrial policies are Targeted and directed government interventions intended to achieve specific, market-beating industrial and commercial outcomes within national borders. The specificity of these targeted interventions is what makes them different from other kinds of broader, more general interventions. In contrast, broader pro-market policies that are not sector-specific such as reducing corporate tax rates, reducing import duties, simplifying labor laws and making land acquisition easier are not categorized as industrial policies. Part 2. Why should you care? Industrial policies are all the rage today and not just in India. Industrial policies never went in demand really. The theory of change behind industrial policies is enticingly simple, to get an uncompetitive business sector of yours to grow, subsidize investment in that sector over the next few years out of taxpayer money. And as you can imagine, industrial policies are quick-fix solutions that any policymaker would love. So, one or the other industrial policy solution is always cooking in government departments regardless of the sector and the country. 
The reason why such policies are now getting concurrent attention worldwide is because of one reason, China. With all the talk of reducing dependence on Chinese technology and manufacturing firms, entire sectors are being deemed as strategic across countries. And once a sector gets termed as strategic, a strategic industrial policy is never far away. And so, the US, EU, India, and China itself, are all launching a spate of new incentive schemes to reshore manufacturing and technology firms. Part 3. Do industrial policies work? They are popular, all right. But are industrial policies effective? In this section, I'll review some arguments for and against them. Batting for industrial policy, albeit in the American context, Stephen K. Fogel declares in a Niskanen Center paper that industrial policy is both imperative and inevitable going ahead. Link available on screen. His argument is that all critical goals of the future, reducing carbon emissions, mitigating climate change, and strengthening supply chain resilience, would be unachievable without targeted government support. And that achieving these goals cannot be left to private firms because of three reasons. 1. Only the government can formulate national missions. 2. The private sector is bound to underinvest in Randy due to positive externalities. And 3. Only government can resolve coordination or network failures. Batting against industrial policies are people at the Cato Institute, of course. Their paper Industrial Policy, A Bad Idea is Back is a searing critique of industrial policies due to four reasons that block success. Link available on screen. 1. Centralized attempts to pick winning critical technologies are more likely to fail as the government does not know it all. Even when the government picks up the right industries for support, it often ends up picking up the wrong products and companies. 2. As you can guess, targeted support enables rent-seeking. Companies that get government backing block competition and seek to mold the scheme for their own benefits rather than policy objectives. Costs balloon, performance falters, bailouts get demanded, and political considerations become paramount. 3. Industrial policies come at an immense cost to society. Besides the seen cost overruns, there are unseen opportunity costs, misallocation of resources, and deadweight losses due to higher tariffs. Finally, industrial policies don't pick winners but it's winners that pick industrial policies. This means even in sectors where such policies created a few successful companies, government support mostly went to companies that could have obtained private funding or produced outcomes that the market could have provided, and did previously without government assistance. Part 4. Where does that leave us? From an Indian perspective, I want to amplify two concerns about industrial policies. First, as the previous section suggests, the real problem with industrial policies is in their design and implementation. Fogel argues that one can get industrial policy right by doing three things, set clear priorities, deploy the appropriate policy tools, and structure government institutions to limit political capture and maximize policy effectiveness. Each of them requires high state capacity. While the first two can be still resolved as they are not transaction-intensive, a lack of adequate regulatory capacity to prevent companies from gaming the system is a big challenge in India. Second, the opportunity cost argument is especially important for a $2,000 per capita income economy. Given that every rupee of revenue raised by the government costs 3 rupees to the Indian society, industrial policies are by default expensive instruments. 
Reflecting on both sides of the argument, my current position is that industrial policies should be deployed very selectively, in sectors that are uber-strategic or where Indian companies enjoy a comparative advantage globally. For example, I would support an industrial policy for building a speciality semiconductor fab in India but I would oppose one that attempts to make display panels in India. Reducing import dependence from China cannot be the driving reason to shower billions of dollars for as many as 13 sectors. We shouldn't forget that incentive schemes are finally band-aid solutions. They might create a few national champions but to eliminate the cost disabilities larks of Indian companies face, there is no alternative to improving tax, business, intellectual property, and trade regimes. Part 5. Postscript, Industrial Policies for Semiconductors The union government launched four schemes worth a total of $10 billion to build a semiconductor and display ecosystem in India. I've given these policies the anticipating the unintended treatment here and here. Links available on screen. To understand the European Union's perspective on industrial policies in this sector, I spoke with Mathieu Duchatel in an episode for the All Things Policy podcast, linked on screen. Homework Reading and listening recommendations on public policy matters. Links available on screen. 1. Book. Diana LX 2012 Masterpiece, India, A Sacred Geography challenges the notion that the Indian nation was a project born out of the freedom movement. 2. Paper. Questioning industrial policy, why government manufacturing plans are ineffective and unnecessary is an insightful read. 